This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Frederick Wary. He's an analyst, a researcher and a writer covering everything in Libya. So he's basically been covering the revolution from the very beginning. He's written an amazing book called The Burning Shores, Inside the Battle for the New Libya. I definitely suggest you get hold of that if you haven't already. It's a really good insight into Libya. And Frederick is going to be explaining today mostly about the current situation where Haftar has invaded Tripoli and there's a new war basically has broken out. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us on the Patreon. Remember, all this is grassroots, no corporations, none of that. Go to patreon.com slash popular front. Apologies for the audio on this one. Firstly, maybe you can explain to us then why this round of fighting has started and what is going on on the ground. Absolutely. Yeah. So so this this current war, which is really the worst violence to afflict Libya since uh, the 2011 revolution um, and includes substantial foreign meddling, um, it's really the result of, of the territorial and political expansion of Khalifa Heftar. Um, now, he's a general that, that's historically been based in the east, uh, one time confidant of, of Gaddafi, defected from Gaddafi's regime, had quite an interesting career where he was recruited by the CIA, then fled to America and lived in America for 20 years before coming back to the revolution. Um, and he's been a central character um, in Libya's post-revolution history for, for quite a while. He's had aspirations to, to rule the country. Um, he first established a foothold in eastern Libya with a military campaign in Benghazi against jihadists and Islamists. But even then, he's always had aspirations to take the battle to Tripoli. And so he's been steadily moving his forces westward. And on April 4th, he attacked the capital in a surprise attack. Now, the claim that he made is that he was going to liberate uh, the capital from Islamists and corrupt militias. Um, and in the capital, what you've got is a very, very weak government that was essentially uh, appointed through a UN-mediated process um, in, in 2016, late 2015, early 2016, that is dependent on militias. Um, and so Heftar is claiming to come in and, and you know, establish order, establish a regular army. But I think this is really just a thin cover for a power grab. Um, and he's enjoyed, as I've mentioned, outside support from the United Arab Emirates, from Egypt, also Russia and France. Um, the other side is now getting support from Turkey. Um, and so what was at first a very you know, local and I think very complicated uh, power struggle has, has really expanded into a proxy war. Right. And maybe it's, it's yeah, it sounds nuts. Maybe um, we can work out then who who's fighting who. So I, I keep seeing GNA, LNA, this allied government, that allied government, what, you know, who's Haftar, who are the militias, you know, what's, what's the, uh, the makeup of the groups on the ground? Sure. Sure. So, so yeah, again, very, very broadly, you've got the, the militia coalition under Heftar, which is called the Libyan national army or LNA. Now that name is, is in fact a bit deceiving because the LNA is really an umbrella grouping for 
a lot of different tribal and local militias that have affiliated themselves to this this uh, coalition that he's leading. There are regular army units, um, special forces units, very well trained. Um, there are also Islamist, Salafist Islamist militias fighting um, alongside him. On the other side, you've got, as you mentioned, the GNA or Government of National Accord, and that's the very weak government in Tripoli that hasn't really been able to administer or govern, and it's beholden to to a whole nother constellation of local militias, uh, many of them in Tripoli, in the capital, who behave as something like mafias, right? They've carved up different neighborhoods into fiefdoms. They've captured um, government ministries. They're extracting wealth from from the budget or from the government's coffers. They're involved in all sorts of illicit black market scams. Um, you've also got militias coming from outside the capital, from powerful cities um, outside the capital, namely Misrata, which is a port city um, three hours east of the capital. Um, very powerful city that that fought the Islamic State and has historically had a lot of problems with Heftar. So I think um, it, it is very complicated, but those are just the very, um, you know, the ver- a very rough overview of, of the different militias. Right. And why would someone join Haftar and why would someone join the other groups? Like what is in it for them? Why are the fighters loyal to specific sides? Is it just where they're from or is there something else? That's a great question. I mean, it's it's histor- it's typically divided, you know, east and west. So Heftar um, for the past, um, you know, four or five years has established a power base in eastern Libya, especially around the city of Benghazi, where he he did, in fact, um, liberate or, or basically get rid of Islamists and jihadist militias in Benghazi. And again, these were the same militias that attacked the uh, American consulate in, in 2012. So Heftar acquired support in eastern Libya from a wide range of people. I mean, there were powerful Eastern tribes. There were just ordinary Libyans who wanted order. And I think that's very important um, to understand um, in terms of asking why Libyans support this this general, who in some sense is a throwback to a different era, right? He's in his- He's uniform. like an old warlord. Yeah, he's a, he's a classic warlord. He, he um, has said Libya is not ready for democracy. He talks about ruling through you know, a strong, a strong hand. He's emulated uh, President Sisi in Egypt. So, so, you know, and, and many Libyans say, look, didn't we have a revolution to overthrow this type of person? But the problem is Libya, since the revolution, has, has experienced such chaos, such violence, um, freewheeling militias. And here you've got a guy who says, you know what, I'm going to restore order, but it may mean you won't have democracy. Some citizens, I think, are, are okay with that bargain. So, um, he's got that support in the East. The other element of support from him, for him is former loyalists uh, to Gaddafi. These were people who were not that thrilled about the 2011 revolution that lost out in the new political order. And they see in him a chance to get even, to acquire new power. So the thing that I've encountered that I want to underscore is multiple different segments attach themselves to Heftar's campaign, to his movement even while they had very real doubts about him as a person and his own ambitions. The other side of the, of the battle are these, these militias um, in and around Tripoli. And I, and I was just um, talking to them on the front lines, you know, asking them, why are you fighting? 
Some of them, these young men, they are fighting because they genuinely don't want a return to a military dictatorship. They see Haftar as Qaddafi part two. They say this battle is the defense of our of our uh, capital. It's a civic duty. Now, that's one side of the, the coin. I mean, the other is these militias are fighting to preserve their own power, their economic status, their their access to economic privilege and the oil wealth, um, and they're expecting the spoils after this battle. Um, so, so again, multiple different motives and militias. Neither side can really be claimed to be fielding a real army or to have real command and control, um, which I think makes it all the more you know dangerous. And right now, I think we're facing a stalemate. That's the other end of this. No, no uh, side in this battle has really achieved, you know, firepower superiority where they've been able to really um, move the battle lines. Right. Well, let's talk about that, because like you said, you were just there. You've been on the ground. I know, you know, it's a very fast moving situation, but maybe you can give us an idea of what is happening out there. You know, what is the battle like? Because every time I see footage, it's wild. It is, it is. And it's, um, you know, since since the April 4th attack, the, the front lines have been, you know, basically static. I mean, one commander I met compared it to World War One, where there would be movement of maybe a couple hundred, 500 meters on either side, shifting front lines. Um, it's a war mainly fought with sort of Soviet era, you know, technology, old, old tanks, technicals with anti-aircraft guns, um, mortars, recoilless rifles. There's obviously, as you've seen from the video, not very good, um, you know, fire discipline among some of these militia mm -hmm. fires. Although what I witnessed, there was in fact, some interesting coordination going on. Um, and, and a more recent development is both sides now are using drones. I mean, Heftar has the proponents of drones, armed drones from the United Arab Emirates. And what I was seeing, um, especially at night, is that that's a real factor in limiting the movement of the GNA militias because they can't, they can't move their vehicles at night because they're going to get hit by these drones that are circling overhead. And um, Heftar also has these these very fearsome uh, anti-tank uh, missiles, the Cornet. Um, and then as we've seen recently in the discovery of a weapons cache, he acquired uh, U.S.-made Javelin anti-tank missiles um, that were originally sold from, from France, which raises the question about France's involvement movement um in in this battle um so so again static front lines you know a lot of artillery barrages um you know some urban fighting but i, I want to emphasize a lot of that changed on on june 26 when the gna forces launched a surprise attack on heftar's forward base in a mountain town called gedeon and this was a really central base for him and they kicked him out and that was a huge blow uh, because it deprived him of a key logistics node. And what you've seen now is Heftar is really scrambling to respond to that, and he's shifted tactics um, to, to airstrikes um, now. And so airstrikes are in civilian areas, um, and that unfortunately resulted in the tragic uh, attack on July 3rd against a migrant uh, detention center that hit, killed 53 people. Um, and this was another thing I witnessed um, in, in the battle, is, is the line between... Conflict areas and civilian areas is blurred. Civilians are are constantly at risk through errant airstrikes. I mean, both sides were using these antiquated MIGs, you know, dropping dumb bombs, and and the results were 
predictably tragic. Yeah, that looked really brutal. I saw that a load of the refugees died from the airstrike. Um, but what I want to know is how did Haftar, how, why has he got planes? Like, because conventionally, you know, with guerrilla warfare, generally militias don't end up with an air force. How, how did this all happen? Well, he, he, when he started his, his campaign, his movement in eastern Libya in 2014, he inherited, um, he, he was able to get to his side um, old Gaddafi military units to include the Air Force. Um, there were Air Force units that defected to his side. So he has, right. um, he has aircraft that were flying, um, you know, that were based in eastern Libya. He's also, in the past couple of years, you know, got, as I mentioned, Emirati um, aircraft, Emirati drones. In, in eastern Libya, he was um, benefiting from Emirati air tractors. These are propeller-driven um, aircraft that are involved in close air support. And the, the other side, the GNA, has a fewer number of jet fighter aircraft um, that actually historically they've had trouble finding pilots for, which is why you had the recent incident where there was a mercenary pilot that was um, shot down flying on behalf of GNA forces. He turned out to be an American, but the, the GNA forces have long employed mercenary pilots to, to, um, to, to fly these aircraft. Yeah, that, that was crazy. How did that guy end up flying a, you know, a jet for Haftar? Well, as I mentioned, this there's a long tradition of this. You know, in in um, 2015, 2016, there were there were social media reports um, that the the Misratans or the GNA forces um, were recruiting and employing mercenary pilots from from Ecuador. From and actually, there was another U.S. pilot, um, not the same one, but another guy. Who who advertised himself on Facebook? You know, took a picture of himself in this the, the cockpit of one of these fighter aircraft. So, you know, it's it's a it's a long tradition, um, and I think it speaks to the the pilot shortage of of um, on the GNA side. Some of these pilots are old; they've been killed in crashes, and so the um, the GNA puts out these advertisements through middlemen in places like Jordan or Qatar, and then. Yeah, some these guys get paid an ex, extravagant amount per per month um, to fly these planes. It's incredible. Um, and why are the Emiratis supporting Haftar? Is it simply because you know it's kind of a proxy against the U.S. or is there something else? Because I saw like France are apparently supporting Haftar as well. Like it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's unpack that. I mean, the the Emirates have long been involved in Libya ever since the 2011 revolution. They they supported the anti-Qaddafi forces with arms, with advisors, um, and and Qatar did so as well. And Qatar, as you know, there, there's been a huge rivalry with the Emirates, um, a personal rivalry, but also a rivalry over regional order and especially the role of Islamists, right? And so the Emirates are viscerally opposed to any political role for Islamists um, in the region and especially in Libya, whereas Qatar has backed Islamist militias in the past. And so I think that really set the stage for this rivalry to play out. Um, starting in 2015, the Qataris really disappeared from the scene and the Emirates continued their support um, to Heftar. They they were backing him ever since he started his military campaign in 2014 because he promised to remove Islamists, right? Not just armed Islamists, not just jihadists, but all political Islamists to include the Muslim Brotherhood. 
Um, and that was music to the ears of the Emirates. They, back in that battle in 2014, they, they conducted airstrikes on his behalf, uh, sent in special operations. And in the ensuing years, they actually built an air base um, in eastern Libya. So they've been heavily involved in backing him. Um, now, what's interesting is the Islamist presence in Libya over the past year, two years, has really diminished. So we have to ask ourselves why the Emirates are involved now or still, um, because the argument that, you know, there's this burgeoning Islamist threat in Libya just doesn't hold water. And so I think the Emirates are motivated purely by, you know, political calculations or, or sort of geostrategic power calculations and also economic. I mean, they they want access to Libya's ports. There's some gains to be had from gas and oil, and they want to ensure that they've got a pliable client, strong man that controls this strategic country for them. Sure. Um, but what are France up to then? Yeah. So that's the other piece of it. So <laughs> this, is, this is really perplexing because, I mean, France, again, um, supported the rebels in 2011 when they toppled this di- uh, dictator, Muammar Gaddafi. And now, um, you know, France has been backing Khalifa Haftar, while at the same time, nominally or theoretically, they support the UN-backed government in Tripoli. Again, this government in Tripoli is imperfect, it's flawed, but it enjoys the support of the UN Security Council and is backed by, you know, UN mandates of, of which France is a part of. So you but France has always been playing this double game. Um, they've pursued a separate clandestine military policy, again, starting in 2014 when Heftar arrived in the scene in Benghazi. They thought he was fighting terrorism, that he could, I think, also prevent um, a jihadist threat to some of the French influences in the south and Chad, Niger. They um, So they started sending... Um, advisors to him in 2014 on the ground, um, intelligence advisors. They have provided him diplomatic support. They've hosted him for various meetings. And when you talk to French officials, they say, look, you know, he's not perfect, but he's he represents a force in Libya. He, we have to bring him in. Um, you know, and I think it's a, it's a sort of Faustian bargain because they they saw a certain utility to him that he could be useful in controlling parts of southern Libya, stopping smuggling, fighting terrorism. But then they didn't realize, or maybe they were naive, that this guy, you know, wants to take over the country, right? And and this attack on Tripoli should not have come as a surprise to them. Um, the French are saying, you know, we didn't know about this, we didn't support it. But they played a very cynical game in basically allowing or tolerating this guy that, 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 you know, France, um, again, enabled Heftar, was was perhaps deceiving themselves that he could be brought into a political process. And I think France bears culpability for this attack on Tripoli, this current war. Um, I mean, the other thing to remember in that before Heftar started this war on April 4th, there were uh, there was a U.N. brokered roadmap um, to to replace the GNA with elections, with a new governing body, with and through a national conference. Heftar was invited to be a part of that. He was basically offered everything on a plate, I mean, to include a prominent role um, in, in the government, overseeing the defense sector. And, and he basically, um, you know, sabotaged that. I mean, 
you know, I think w- deceived people that he was part of that process. And then all the while he was pl- he was plotting this attack on Tripoli. Yeah, he certainly I think it sounds like the French would have made him feel a bit emboldened as well to do that. Um, and what about this Islamist situation? Because I've been reading a little bit about the kind of uh, ISIS cells within Libya. And at one point I read they they held some land and I'm not sure at the minute. But how serious is that, you know, specifically the ISIS threat? Right, so it's it's um it is a, a, con- a concern. ISIS suffered a major blow to their their territorial hold on Libya in 2016 after a seven month campaign by Libyan uh, militiamen that were aligned to the government of National Corps, the Tripoli government. So these these militia fighters evicted the Islamic State from their stronghold in Sirte, which is a central city, um, and so the Islamic State has been on its heels. There's by some estimates, about 600 to 800 of them still floating around in the desert south of Sirte. They're in these mobile bands. They're, they're still a lethal force. They've been able to carry out attacks on checkpoints. Um, last year alone, in 2018, they, they conducted over 25 attacks at include um, attacks on, on very sensitive targets in Tripoli, like the oil ministry and the election headquarters. So they're trying to demonstrate that they're still a force. They don't, they don't have a territorial base in, in, you know, a city or a town. Um, but the, the thing really is that this war, this new civil war has, has created a vacuum. Um, and it's a gift to them because previously, these Islamic State cells were kind of kept in a box. They were being contained by Libyan militias from both sides, from both Heftar's side and the GNA side. Now those militias are more focused on fighting each other. So if they have limited men and resources, they're not going to devote them to fighting the Islamic State. And in fact, I talked to some um, Libyan militias that were previously involved in counterterrorism. They're saying, look, we've, we've had to shift our resources to fight Heftar. Um, and, and so I think it's a, it's a big blow to um, counterterrorism. Um, I, I don't know if the Islamic State is going to substantially expand, but, but this can't be a really a good thing in terms of, you know, keeping them, keeping them underground. Um, there are apparently still contacts between um, U.S. military forces and some of these militias that were fighting ISIS. So the U.S. is still focused on that on that ISIS threat and has historically, you know, dealt with ISIS through um, through drone strikes. Right. Even inside inside Libya. Yes, absolutely. There's been a huge uh, uptick, uh, especially under the Trump administration of, of drone strikes um, <clears throat> in, inside Libya, again, ostensibly through the invitation of the GNA. Um, but basically, as I've been told, anytime AFRICOM, the, the U.S. African Command, the military sees uh, these ISIS bands, you know, pooling or, or getting, you know, in, in any substantial numbers in the desert, they they strike them, you know, in, in their camps or, or vehicles. Right. Um, and this might sound like a weird question, but what happened to the Zintan brigades? Because I remember when I used to read about Libya, I mean, I was 21 when the revolution happened, so it was a little while after that. Um, but I was really interested in the Zintan brigades, which were, as far as I was aware, kind of like a very moderate and serious militia, but I haven't heard much about them. The Zintan brigades, yes. I mean, they, they were a powerful force um, in the revolution, again, based in this mountain town of, of Zintan outside of Tripoli. They, they played a central role in the liberation of Tripoli. I mean, <clears throat> they've been heavily involved in 
most of Libya's factional battles ever since. Um, they are. What was interesting is they actually sided with Heftar in his first sort of civil war, uh, his battle in 2014. Um, but now many of them are are fighting him. Um, they've switched sides um, to include this very prominent uh, general um, who's actually in charge of the entire defense of Tripoli, Osama Jouali, uh, very well-known Zintani commander. So the bottom line is, yeah, Zintan is still around. Um, they're actually split. There are some Zintani militias and, and figures that are kind of with Heftar. Um, but, but yeah, you're right. I mean, they're, they're an important force to watch. Um, they field very capable, um, you know, militias. Um, so, yeah. Sure. Um, and now I know this is going to be a big ask, but I know a lot of our listeners are on the younger side and certainly I don't remember it properly. Um, can you maybe give us a breakdown of how the revolution happened, you know, because all I remember was just seeing Gaddafi is bad now, we don't like him anymore, and there are US, you know, troops here and there. I mean, there were a few kind of advisors, but mostly it was like, oh, it's this big revolution. Now, it, I, I'm not quite sure, you know, maybe you can give us an idea. Yeah, absolutely. So, so again, this was, I think, you know, part of the Arab Spring uh, protest, you know, movements that that swept across, um, <clears throat> you know, Tunisia and Egypt. I was actually in Libya while those protests were happening, and and a lot of people in Libya, to include people at the U.S. Embassy, did not think the revolution, these revolutions, would arrive in Libya. Libya has ex- ex- extravagant oil wealth; its citizens are relatively well off, especially when you compare them to to Cairo. Um, there was the sense that Gaddafi could buy off dissent, you know, with that oil wealth. But it, it was a dictatorship, right? And there were huge problems with justice. Um, you know, this was a kleptocracy. How did it start? There were there were protests in the eastern city of Benghazi, which historically has been a site of dissent and sort of resistance against the the regime. Um, these protests initially. We're talking about a constitution, um, justice, the release of political prisoners. And as so often happens, um, they devolved into violence. Why? Because the regime um, overreacted, um, started responding with brute force, and very quickly the, the revolution spread um, to other cities. Um, and the important thing to remember about this revolution is that it was truly bottom up. There was no central unifying um, opposition body or, or armed group, you know, like, I mean, maybe the Northern Alliance in Afghanistan or the SPLA in Sudan. It was basically each town forming its own, you know, militias, protection forces rising up. And then there was very loose coordination after throughout the revolution. But there was always suspicion among some of these different armed factions and, and militias. Then March 19th, you had the NATO intervention, um, again, backed heavily by the United States um, under a United Nations Security Council revolution that was to protect civilians. There was a real fear that Gaddafi would massacre civilians, that you could have something of a Rwanda part two or something like Bosnia. We we now know that those fears were exaggerated or, or inflated, but at the time, again, among policymakers, there was a real sense that Gaddafi was going to, you know, kill civilians. And so the international community had to act. Now, there's a lot of controversy about what happened um, in the course of that intervention and, and that the intervention ultimately resulted in regime change. Um, and so there were 
um, you know, I think toward the end of the revolution, there was an unstated goal to topple Gaddafi. You had um, advisors, people on the ground working with the rebels um, on targeting and, and intelligence from France, Britain, and the United States. So there was an active effort not necessarily under the NATO mandate, but these individual states to help the rebels in their effort to overthrow Gaddafi. And, and in um, um, August, they finally did that. Um, October, um, Gaddafi was killed. He was dragged out of a ditch where he was fleeing in a convoy after an airstrike. He was killed without a trial through by a gunshot with a militiaman. And so... You know, that, I think that sort of set the tone for what happened. And, and just in a nutshell, I mean, the basic problem of Libya is not that the NATO intervention destroyed Libya or destroyed the state. I mean, technically, the air campaign was actually quite precise. The problem is um, the international community just abandoned Libya to its devices after the overthrow of Gaddafi. There was no real follow up. Um, the United States especially washed its hands, right? They said, we don't want to own the post-conflict reconstruction. We want the Europeans to take care of it. We want the United Nations to take care of it. For a variety of reasons, those countries did not step up. But I think, and I just want to end on this, um, the ultimate, you know, responsibility or, or, you know, I think ownership of this lies in Libyans. And, And Libyans, they were always divided about what kind of state they wanted. They didn't have the experience to, to you know, establish a state because for 42 years, Gaddafi had ruled this country like a personal fiefdom. Um, he didn't set up institutions. So Libyans really started from zero or less than zero, right? And so I think that's the huge thing we have to remember. It's blessed with enormous oil wealth, but in some sense, that's a curse, right? Because it's, it's, a, it's something to spend to fight over. And, and I think part of Libya's conflict since the revolution has really come down to a battle for who controls this, this enormous oil wealth. Yeah, definitely a curse in some cases. Um, thank you very much. Um, if people want to follow your work, you know, find out more, um, where can they do that? Um, all my writings are available at the Carnegie Endowment uh, website, www.ceip.org. Uh, that's the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And I've also published uh, a recent book on Libya after the 2011 revolution that really tries to explain what went wrong. It talks about all the different players and militias, talks about the international role. The book is called The Burning Shores Inside the Battle for the New Libya. Yeah, I read that. I thought it was amazing. So, um, And you on Twitter as well, right? Yes, yes. I'm on Twitter at F-W-E-H-R-E-Y. Brilliant. Okay, thank you very much, mate. All right, Nick. Thank you. Cheers. was Frederick Wary explaining the very complex situation with the current conflict in Libya. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front and you want to help keep things moving forward, in return you get bonus episodes, access to the Discord, all sorts of stuff. Go to patreon.com slash popularfront. This episode was sponsored by the defensepost.com, defense with an S. Check them out for daily reportage on the world in conflict. Keep up to date with Popular Front. You can follow me on Twitter. That's at Jake underscore Hanrahan. Or you can follow the Popular Front Twitter. That's at Popular Front CO. On the Instagram, we are popular.front. So at popular.front. 
And if you go to the website, www.popularfront.co, you will see articles, video, all sorts of stuff there. There's a lot going on. Also, be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube. That's youtube.com slash popularfront. To be honest, we could do with some more subscribers on there. There's no cat videos or anything like that. So obviously there's no traction, but you know, we're, we're putting out uh, original content, independent documentaries. So go to youtube.com slash popularfront. Thank you very much to the following people from the Patreon. Without these people, this wouldn't be possible. They are Anthony Kabarik, Adam Berg-Snyder, Andrew Fife, Axel Iverson, Brian McLaughlin, Chad Walker, Dan Dunham, Daniel Shearer, Diana Gorbanek, Emiliano, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Jack Mayhoff, James from the Discord, Joanne Stocker, Joel Tambusi, Josh, Kay Hardy Roberts, Kyle N. Payne, Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Margaret Bowling, Moody Al Rashid, Noah, Ari from the Discord, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormack from What Bitcoin Did, Cuball, Russia Alakidi, Royal Payne, Diaz, Ryan Sandercock, Scartoon Music, Scott Jonesy, Sebastian from the Discord, Sarushay Hawazi, Stephen Davila, Teddy, Tom Lochrin, Tony Bin, Vida Provost, and Zachary Hinch. And if I got anybody's name wrong or you know said it wrong, whatever, please do uh, let me know. I try to make sure it's you know all correct, but not always. So yeah, um, if you want extras, if you want to keep Popular Front moving, remember this is all grassroots. Go to Patreon.com/PopularFront. Music in this episode: the intro was by Home, and the outro was by. Cramped Skunkman, go to his bandcamp, that's crampedskunkman.bandcamp.com. <laughs>